Hi, and welcome to Recovered, a podcast from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in Dallas, Texas, and known by many as Maggie's. My name is Stephanie, and I am a recovered alcoholic on staff at the Magdalene House. Each week, I have the pleasure of conducting a live interview with an alcoholic woman in recovery for the participants who are currently in our Next Step program. Whether you're in recovery yourself, contemplating giving it a try, or just supporting someone who is, we are so glad you're here. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to Recovered, Interviews with Alcoholic Women. Today, we have on Valerie, and uh, I originally met Valerie whenever I was working at the 2-4, and um, and she was working for Nexus, and she would uh, refer us a lot of clients. And we would have talks about recovery in my office, which is how I learned that she does have such a heart for helping others and serving others and um, in the big book in recovery. So I'm super grateful to have her on today. Valerie, if you don't mind just introducing yourself and giving us a little bit of background on what led you to get sober. My name is Valerie. My sobriety date is April 26th of 2002. I can tell you that I think that there was a little bit of doom from the beginning. I, uh, my mother was a bartender and my father was a patron. And so I am the result of a drunken one night stand. Of course, later on, they did the right thing and got married or the right thing back then. And, um, but they were not very married very long. And, And when I tell you that my entire life, my father, struggled with alcoholism and my mother struggled with being a mother. You know, it's hard to pass down something that you were never given to begin with. So our relationship was really volatile. So I began to rebel at a very early age. Since my parents were separated, my mom worked a lot. And, you know, when you don't watch your children, a lot of things can happen. So I think that my rebellion was kind of a trauma response based on things that had happened uh, when people weren't looking. And uh, I can tell you from as early on as I can remember, I just went wild. We moved around a lot. So I always felt like I didn't fit in. You know, I was always the new kid, the fat kid, the the kid with the tracks, tennis shoes from Kmart while everybody else is wearing you know, Jordash and guests and stuff like that. And just always had a hard time fitting in. And uh, I can remember early on somebody giving me alcohol. And uh, that night showed, showed signs of uh, alcoholism because when that first drink hit me, I mean, that was what I wanted to do. And uh, I drank to oblivion and I did a lot of crazy things and I sobered up the next day and I thought I had learned my lesson. But as time went on, there were more incidents like that. Um, I wasn't a person at any time that drank every day. Um, I. It enabled me to be bold enough to try different things. Um, So adding 
drugs on top of the alcohol and, and the alcohol giving me the courage to go make the money for the drugs. And I mean, it was just horrible. So by the time I was 15, I was pregnant um, from a drunken one night stand. Um, and uh, I had dropped out of school and uh, I met somebody and we got pregnant again and, and got married. And I really had no business being married. I didn't know anything about being a wife, much less a mother. Um, I was more interested in partying. And, and when, I, when I talked about how alcohol would give me courage to do other things, you know, I started doing drugs as well. And that left, led me down a very dark path. You know, I lost custody of my children. I uh, did things for, for money that I would, wouldn't have thought that I would do. I stayed on the streets for a really long time. I was homeless. And then there was a police intervention and uh, they sent me to treatment. And I stayed in that center for seven months. It was a 90 day program, but I was scared to leave because I had gotten a taste of sobriety and what life could be like. And it was surrounded by women that, even women that work there, that were already living the life that we live right now. And I wanted that. And I stayed sober for about five and a half years, but that last year, I had stopped going to meetings. I had moved and didn't reestablish my support. And uh, I made my job my number one priority and I drank again. And the funny thing was, is that they talk about how cunning, baffling and powerful alcohol is because what my mind told me was that maybe if I didn't do that other stuff that I would be able to drink. And so from the very first night that I drank at a Christmas party with my bosses, I was very much so making up for lost time. Uh, I did it under the guise of I earned this because I had been sober all this time. And I burned my life to the ground in about four months. During that five and a half years, you know, my, uh, I never regained custody of my children. They were three and one when I lost them. They were five and seven when they were adopted. And so when I hear women talk about how, you know, they don't know how they're going to manage if they don't get their children back, or they don't know how to manage if they're not going to get their, uh, their uh, husbands back. I, I can tell you that if you do what is suggested in the program, you will manage um, because I didn't get my kids back. In that five and a half years, I remarried to whom I'm still married to. And we had another child. And I even struggled with that, being sober, because I think I felt deep down that if I were to fully embrace motherhood to her, that somehow it would discount the existence of the others. So... When she was eight months old, that's when I drank again. And just after she turned one, 
I was binging and my husband was like, I can't do this. You know, he's a healthy gal and he's like, I'm packing my stuff and taking her and we're out of here. And I just knew that, you know, I barely survived the loss of the other two. And uh, I asked for God's help and I ended up in treatment that night. And uh, the day that I got sober, my intention was not to get sober. The day that I got sober, I got sober because the consequences were too much. And because the seed had been planted before, I was able to fully believe that by making it back to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, that it would work. And I threw myself in, you know, I didn't have a job because when I'm doing what I do, I'm non-employable. I'm either all in or all out. And, and, and alcohol is going to lead me to the most toxic, deadly thing, most toxic, deadly situations that I can find myself in. So I had plenty of time and I started making a lot of meetings. We moved back to Texas and I was going to my current group, which is, I'm sitting in the Al-Anon room right now um, because it's quiet up here right now. Um, and I was a couple of months sober, just moved. And I met my sponsor who actually was a director at Maggie's for a while. And, uh, you know, initially I was nervous about asking her to sponsor me, um, you know, because my ego was really big and I didn't want to be vulnerable like that. Um, but it was the best thing that I could have done because she really walked with me hand in hand and spoon fed me this big book and, and was able to give me exactly what I needed. Now, I wish I could tell you that in the last 19 years that it has all been smooth sailing. But in this time, you know, both of my parents have died. My sons that I had lost um, or pretty much gave away, um, we were reunited when they were 16 and 14. And, uh, and that's been beautiful and sad and wonderful and devastating all at the same time because I I knew I accounted for the damage and the hurt that I had but I never accounted for the damage and hurt that they may have had and I guess I thought that we were going to be running through the lilies you know and embrace and it was going to be perfect after that but you know things happened with them and and I'm really fortunate that they're not struggling with um, alcohol or drug addiction. Um, I'm really fortunate that <clears throat> that CPS and, the, um, and that um, the state intervened when they did because they might not have the lives that they have today. They're very successful in what they do, their parents, their good parents. And uh, had they have stayed with me, it might not have gotten to that. I mean, it might not, they might not be as successful. Now, my daughter, you know, she's 20 now. And save for those four months, she's never seen me under the influence. But I have raised her in Freedom Group. And in raising her in Freedom Group, well, I'm growing up in Freedom Group. And so she's watching all of my isms 
you know, and watching me um, try to grow out of uh, complete self-centeredness and complete selfishness and, and, and all the early lessons that I had to learn in sobriety. She became a member of Ality um, when she was old enough, and um, she's now aged, aged out of Ality, and she has a child, and, um, and she's not struggling with addiction issues either. So I think that I really dodged a bullet. My children dodged bullets that they didn't have the same experiences, and because my older children were removed from me and did not have to live in what they call trap houses now with me. Um, and my daughter was raised with a sober mother and a sober father, um, who's not one of us, then she had a better chance of not going through some of the same things that I had. And, uh, it's a crazy, wonderful life. Um, I am very active in my AA group. The same things that I did when I got sober, having a sponsor, sponsoring other women, um, being a part of service board and doing service within the group. Um, we're doing a book study right now. We've carried on that legacy of my uh, former sponsor. Um, we're doing a book study right now. I try to stay in the book. Um, I found God in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I hear him the purest and the, the loudest in Alcoholics Anonymous. I love that, that God knows that sometimes he needs to channel himself through my social support around me um, and gives me exactly what I need. Um, I make meetings. So everything that I did in the beginning to stay sober are still the same things that I do. And the cool thing is I don't have to do them, but if I want to stay sober, I have to do them, you know, and I, I'm glad that I had that experience of drinking again, because I think that I had that notion in the back of my head for a long time that, if I just left the drugs alone, that I would be able to drink. And it was because my alcoholism didn't look like my father's. My father drank every day. He woke up in the morning and put whiskey in his coffee and he drank every day. Well, I didn't drink every day. So somehow I thought that I was different. But truth is, I wasn't different. Because when I did put alcohol in, in me, I might as well have been drinking every day. And... Uh, Sure does make it a lot easier to stay away from drugs if I'm not drinking. Um, and now I have this fantastic life. I, I, I was restaurant manager for a while. I served on the board at Maggie's um, around the time that Harriet came. Um, Harriet was one of my customers at, uh, when I was a manager at Einstein Bagels. Um, I injured myself at work, so my kids suggested that I go to college. And so I graduated um, with my master's in social work. And now I'm a licensed master social worker. While I was in school, you know, I worked full time, went to school full time and did an internship down at Turtle Creek Recovery. 
uh, worked at Nexus. I'm a certified recovery coach, uh, recovery support peer specialist, I call that, and worked with recovery support services. I worked at Nexus for about four years. You know, it's the least money that I ever made, but it is the best job that one of the best jobs that I ever had because my whole job was to show other women that there was life beyond drugs and alcohol. And my whole job was to show you that there was fun in recovery and, and you could make it through the trials and tribulation of, of life. You could live on life's terms. So, and they paid me to do it, you know? And then after I graduated, um, I went down to, I moved to Austin Street Center. Austin Street is a uh, shelter for men 45 and over and women 18 and over. And my sole job right now as a social worker for Austin Street is to end homelessness. So I work with clients and <clears throat> help them work through some of the barriers. And many of the barriers right now are substance use disorder. I see a lot of me every day. Not only am I reminded of what life could look like were I to drink again, I am amazed at the resilience of people that are vulnerable enough and brave enough and have enough courage to try something different. This program works. If you would have told me 20 years ago, I would be doing what I'm doing. If you'd have told me 10 years ago, I'd be doing what I was doing now. I would have told you you were nuts. It, it's great to be at the place that I am in my recovery. I don't think I've ever been happier. So wonderful. I, I didn't realize that you had such a powerful story. Um, and you have so much experience, strength, and hope to share. I also didn't know that you were on the board at Maggie's. How cool is that? So before I ask any questions, do any of the ladies have a question that they want to ask? Um, I have a question, yeah. Stephanie. Yeah, go ahead, Rachel. So I noticed in your story, you, you talked about your older children and, you know, that relationship was repaired. Did they also go through the, like the Alateen or any Al-Anon or anything like that? I mean, once you guys rekindled that, were they open, you know, try, to try to understand your disease and and how you got sober or whatever the case may be? They did not participate in an Alateen. And I think that it made it <clears throat> more difficult for them. They did not have the benefit that my daughter did because all they knew is their mother abandoned them, you know? And no matter what the circumstances were, you know, no. And so they struggled early on in their, in their teenage years with trying to overcome a lot of things that happened whenever they were taken away from me. So, no, they did not. Uh, they've supported my recovery journey and are glad that it's working for me. Um, but, no, they did not seek any help. So it's taken them a little bit longer, you know, to get where they need to be. But they're 32 and 30 now. Um, and they were 16 and 14 when they came back in my life. So there's been a lot of uh, growth for them as well. 
you've done like a living amends with them. I mean, once you reconnected, they just saw through your actions and stuff that you're not the same person. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I sat down and answered questions for them and I told them probably more than I should have actually. They came and heard me share my story one time. Yeah. So, and still live my amends and, you know, they have children now. So I try to live my amends through the children as well, you know, by being, I'm granny. So by being the best granny that I can be and being present for them as well. Great question, Rachel. Um, Now I see pictures on Facebook, which I believe are your sons, correct? The older ones are my son. So then uh, the relationships are good today, right? Yeah. The relationships are good today. Um, One is living in Tennessee and the other one lives in Odessa and, you know, and they've got their families and very successful. And, you know, I, when, when they were finally fully adopted, my sponsor at the time told me that they would be back. And I told her that she was crazy, that this was the end. And I was 18 months sober when I fully lost custody. It was devastating, but not devastating enough to drink because I had a good support system. I never thought that they would come back in my life. And they did um, because kids want to know where they come from. You know, so anybody that's lost their children and think that they're not going to come back. Kids want to know where they come from. You know, I was real careful not to change my full name so they would be able to search me out um, the way social media is right now. I mean, you can't really much hide from anybody. You know, if you're looking for a birth parent, if you had a name, there's a good chance you might be able to find them. So, yeah. Well, I think that's what I mean. It just reminds me of, you know, the page where it says, like, job or no job, wife or no wife, kid or no kid, we like to say at Maggie's. Now, as a mother, like, I'm thinking, I mean, I was just away from my daughter for, I don't know, time is a blur. You guys all know that whenever we're out there for what seemed like a year, maybe. And it was devastating and I could not imagine a greater pain than knowing that like you lost your children for at that moment seems like forever and I think the fact that you stayed sober through it gives a lot of experience strength and hope but I know somebody is thinking either if they're listening or on their call how the heck do you stay sober through that so do you mind just sharing how you got through that and and your recovery Well, initially when they were taken, I was um, in the street doing what I did. And um, I used that as fuel to take my addiction further than I thought I would ever do. Um, But when I got sober and it was finalized, it was really important that I had people around me that understood what I was trying to do. And that was to make a selfless decision to allow my children to remain in an environment where they were being nurtured and taken care of and 
try not to put myself first for the first time ever. That was the most selfless decision that I ever made was to sign those papers and relinquish my rights completely. And, uh, and it was because they were in a very stable situation with a loving family. And what right do I have? Because I'm two months, 10 months, one year, year and a half sober to come in and say, nope, I'm sober now. Give me my kids back, you know? And so during the time, I mean, I had a great sponsor and, you know, we just did a lot of service work and made a lot of meetings. And yes, there were birthdays and mother's days where, you know, I was just devastated all over again, but I had to pick up and I had to keep moving and I had to, I had to do it one day at a time. And I threw myself into my program, which is what gave me the foundation. So that seed was planted so deep that whenever I did drink again, I had some place to go back to. And I knew that it would work. I just needed to get back. Are you an alcoholic woman in recovery? At the Magdalene House, we host 12-step recovery meetings seven days a week, 365 days a year. Whether you're a woman newly sober and wondering where to begin, or you've been in recovery for decades and are looking for other women to connect with, we hope you join us. You can find our meeting schedule and other fellowship opportunities at magdalenehouseorg meetings. So it's still painful when I think about um, the hurt that I caused my children. Um, that's one thing I wish I could undo. Um, and But now it's not, I'm not wrapped up in guilt and shame because I know where that leads me. I've had to do some outside work with um, mental health professionals to come to that place. And truth is the feeling now is just remorse. I just have remorse um, and I can't go back and undo it, but I can do everything that I can today to be present. And I guarantee you that if my son who's in Knoxville, Tennessee, running a car dealership called me today and needed me, I would be on a plane tonight because it is very important for me to be as consistently present as I was consistently absent, if you know what I mean. No matter what, no matter, you know, it didn't matter whether or not they were liking me in the moment or, or mad at me or not talking to me because the, we've had ebbs and flows in the relationship. It didn't matter. What my job was to be was to love them regardless. So I didn't base my actions with them or towards them. I didn't base that on the way they were feeling about me in the moment. So the relationship was hard early on. It's easier now, but it was hard early on. So powerful. I love the consistently present as I was consistently absent. I think that's, that's such good, good advice. If you would call that advice, I don't know what you call that, but I think it's so good. Anybody have a question? Okay. So, oh, hold on. Elsa, did you have a question? 
Hi, yes, I'm Elsa. Um, how is your husband supporting you? How much support do you have from him? You know what? My husband is amazing. I, I met my husband um, during my time in the streets. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, he was just hanging out. He didn't have our issue. And he told me that he couldn't be with me because of my addiction and he told me that I didn't belong there and when I figured it out he would meet me on the other side so I was 18 19 months sober and I ran into him and I was sober and we started dating and eventually we got married um I I can tell you that he knew me in the streets so he knew what he was potentially marrying and I don't think that he was as involved mentally emotionally educationally as he is now prior to my relapse because after I relapsed and you know and he was going to leave because you know he's healthy you know and healthy people don't hang on to us whenever we're destroying our lives you know, he became involved too when he went to Al-Anon and um, he went to relapse prevention classes with me. Um, I seen him up at the front talking to the counselor one day while they were doing a, a cigarette break and uh, he was writing some stuff down. And, and when we were driving home, I was like, what were you talking to him about? And he was like, oh, I was getting your signs of relapse. And he showed me the paper of what what it looks like if I'm getting off, uh, getting off the beam, you know? And so he made it his mission to be educated. Now, does he go to Al-Anon today? Absolutely not. But he comes up here and he celebrates birthday night and, you know, and he's a part of my group as well. Um, you know, and he encourages me to go to meetings and, and stay involved because he knows how important this is because he seems he's seen what happens whenever you break off that support. So he's been amazing. Um, but again, I mean, living with somebody that doesn't have the disease of alcoholism that creates some challenges too, because there are things that, you know, he doesn't understand that how you could walk away from such a great life he, he didn't understand how, how you could do that. And when he found out that really became educated on the fact that what we have is a disease and that uh, how the mental obsession and, uh, and the phenomenal, phenomenon craving after the first drink, how it can skew you and drive you to do other things. Then he began to understand that I wasn't burning his life down because I'm enjoying it and that's what I'm doing. I was doing it because it was out of control and I did not know how to stop. And so he had to be educated. So, and he took it upon himself. And what I'm going to tell you, I'm very fortunate in the fact that because I see women come in, you know, and their husbands want them to come in and want them to get help. But, you know, after they start to get better, then the husbands are like, why, 
why are you still going to those meetings? You know, and they're like, because it's a lifelong journey and not understanding. And, and I see that a lot with family members, uh, especially working at Nexus. You know, they bring their family members and say, here, heal them, but don't get help themselves. You know. Mm-hmm. I think that's so important to to talk about. We've talked about that before in our family afterward workshop. Um, and I, it, it's, you do, you do see that um, quite a bit sometimes. Uh, anybody else have a question? Okay. Now I remember, don't ask me why I remember the things that I do. I have a really good memory. Um, and I remember in conversations that are, that I thought were, imp- that are important to me. But so I remember us sitting in my office one day uh, talking about the big book and you talked about your experience going through the book and with your sponsor and, you know, like having the big book dictionary and yada, yada, yada. Uh, do you mind uh, sharing your experience on going through the work or going through the book and what that was like and what happened? You know, it was really important because that I did it with somebody else. Um, the way Bill writes in the big book, um, some of that language was just over my head and words that I thought I knew the meaning of, I didn't necessarily really know the meaning of. So me and my sponsor, I mean, we went through paragraph by paragraph and I broke down words. You know, I was reading um, in more about alcoholism the other day during a, a meeting and, you know, uh, the word vain, count, countless vain attempts to try to stay sober, you know, and I thought I knew what vain meant. I thought vain had to do with vanity and it does, but it also means useless, unproductive, you know, so I needed my sponsor to help me go through page by page and look up things. You know, I listened to it on audio and I read it at the same time. You know, I knew that the answer lied in the book. And, but when I first read it, man, the way it's written, you know, I had a, a, I didn't even finish the eighth grade. So it was way over my head. I felt like it was, it was almost as intimidating to me as many of the, uh, the things that I didn't feel a part of when I was growing up. So yeah, it was intimidating. I did not know that that's what vain meant. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, so now I know I'm going to add that in my book. And uh, but is there any other? So I'm just wondering, is there any other word like that that like you thought you knew what it meant, but it meant something else that you can think of off the top of your head? Uh, sure. Let me let me look at my book, and I'll tell you. You know, in the beginning, whenever we start going through uh, uh, the forward to the second edition where augury, you know, prediction of a larger future ahead. I didn't know that. Vital, vital means crucial, deluge, uh, when it talks about in the forward to the second edition about how the general public um, deluged uh, Alcoholics Anonymous with inquiries and deluge means flooded in, you know? So, I mean, I mean, and there's a billion words like that in the, in the big book mm-hmm. and to break it down like that would 
translate it into simpler terms for me. Mm, It's so good. And I, I think, I think it's also inspiring the the fact that you said like you didn't finish the eighth grade, um, but it didn't stop you from having an experience with the big book and like how you had a sponsor who would sit there and read with you and work with you. I just think is so powerful in itself, you know, because that's the kind of sponsor that I would want to be if I was working with someone who didn't understand and, and she must have had a lot of, I know she sounds really great. So I think that's wonderful. Okay. So whenever you were going through the steps, when was it that you started having, or did you notice or other people notice you starting to have a a shift and and change? I want to say that is when I got to step five, you know, I wrote out my four step thinking it was about other people. And, And truth was that it was learning about me and, and even showing where I had been selfish and self-centered, but also where maybe my perception of things weren't always what they were. So going through the fifth step with, uh, with my sponsor, you know, we took a lot of time. It was like 18 hours total because I totaled up all the times because we broke it up in, in sessions and one name might be similar to another name with the reasons I was angry and I might work it out with that one name and think, oh, I don't need to talk about that next one. But she was like, nope, we're going to talk about the next one too. And she had me really do a deep dig. Um, this, this whole journey has really been about enlightenment. And six and seven for me, you know, I lived at, I've lived out step seven growing up in recovery. Uh, the 12 and 12 talks about character building and how humbling experiences build our character. And it has been humbling, embarrassing at times. So I, I think that that whole uh, spiritual awakening really began for me in the fourth and fifth step. Awesome. Okay. So going from not having an eighth grade education to having your master's is like a huge deal. I think that in itself is super inspiring. Was there a time where you like you thought that like you just that was impossible for you or that like you didn't like you couldn't do it or anything like that? I battled that the entire time. I didn't finish the eighth grade, but, you know, when I first was introduced in the program and I was in that seven-month facility that I stayed in, my judge made me go get a GED. And and I took the GED test, and I was so proud of that. Girl, I got me a $30 frame and framed it. And, you know, in the 90s, $30 was a lot more than $30 today. And, uh, and I was so proud of it. But when I went to uh, Eastfield to get into college, I didn't go to college to become a social worker. I went to college so I could move out of uh, 
restaurant management at a store level and go into maybe HR and a corporate level. But I took my first psych class and I knew um, after taking that, that psych class that I needed to be doing something that involved helping others. Uh, but I battled that the whole time because, you know, I still have a mind that wants to tell me that I'm not good enough or that I'm not enough, you know, and, and it's, that voice has been there my whole life and I could drown it out before with alcohol, but now I have to drown it out with the contradictions of the results that have been produced around me. Um, with God speaking to me through other people, through other women, um, watching them go through the same struggles and whatever they're doing. So it was a battle the whole time. You know, I, I didn't think that I would be able to finish, but all I could do was just, you know, bury my, you know, bury my head in the work and just bulldoze forward. Sometimes I was, sometimes it was, it was really rough and, and almost defeating, but I had a lot of people around me that encouraged me to keep going. Oh, so good. Anybody? Okay. So do you find that the tools and everything that you have in the program um, is beneficial to the work that you do? And are you able to apply, how do you apply the principles from the program into the line of work that you do? Yes, very, very beneficial. You know, the cool thing about us as people that are, um, you know, in this program is we speak a language that only we know that we're hearing when we hear it. So when I'm sitting with my clients that I know are struggling with, um, telling me that they're having uh, an issue with alcohol or, or drugs. Um, I'm pretty open, you know, I tell them, look, Hey, we all have a past and we all have something we're trying to overcome. Just please tell me what's going on. So I'll know, you know, how I can begin to help you. That's been probably what might set my relationship apart from the relationship of my colleagues with their clients because I'm the only one of me on our uh on our case management team right now that uh has our experience and uh I think that it gives me a whole different language kind of a love language um to be able to reach people whenever others can't and and you know I can hear my uh, clients or my colleagues talk to their clients and, and they're not getting anywhere with them. And then maybe the client leaves and I'm like, you know, he's struggling with addiction. And she's like, how did you know that? And I'm like, because I struggled with addiction. You know, I know it when I hear it, they're trying not to tell you, but that's the, that's the, the main catalyst and, and why they're here right now. And, and the biggest thing for me is to remember where I came from and, and, and extend the kindness and the compassion and the care that I wish might've been extended to me early on. Who knows what that would have done 
to my future when I was where I was. And so to be a part of maybe planting a seed of possibility into somebody, that's the coolest job ever. Ah, so good. Anybody else? Okay. So we're getting to the top of the hour, but before I ask the wrap-up question, um, because you have had such a full life in recovery and you've had gifts with your children and, you know, your going back to school and career and marriage and all, I mean, you've had such a, you said, I think you even said it's a beautiful life in recovery. What would you say is one of the biggest gifts recovery has given you um, thus far? One of the biggest gifts, and I think that it's most important, is growing up, I didn't feel like I fit in anywhere. And with my group, with my support system, with the other women in my group, I'm connected. And you can't, we can't do this alone. We have to have social support. It's allowed me to be vulnerable and open to let other people in and to know that I do not have to do this alone. And, you know, I learned how to be a mother, a wife, a daughter. You know, I have grown up. I was 23 when I first came to the rooms and I have grown up in the rooms. So that's the one thing that has really impacted me greatly. So do you feel like you fit in now? Yes. Yes. I love being able to come to a place where I can be 1000% me. I can't be 1000% me at work. I really have to, can't always do that at home because, you know, I'm the mother and the grandmother and, and the wife, but here I can be 100% me. And it doesn't matter if I'm having a good day or having a bad day. If I need to cry through the entire meeting because things just really suck right now, it's a, it's a place of kind of a sanctuary for me. So. Mm, I love that. All right. So my wrap up question, unless anyone has a question. Okay. Is um, if you could leave us with one takeaway, first, I just want to say this has been lovely. It's been great. I didn't, I've never really heard your story before. Um, and so I just, it's, it's been wonderful to get to be a part of this podcast today. And for all those listening, if you've enjoyed this podcast or any other podcast, please like subscribe or leave a review. It does help us reach more alcoholic women, which is what we're trying to do. Uh, so Valerie, our final question is if you could leave us with one takeaway, give it the listeners or the next step participants on the call kind of like, if you don't hear anything I say, hear this, what would that take away that you'd want to leave us with? My biggest takeaway would be that, that I would want them to leave with is there's a formula to stay sober and you might get away with not doing one or two of the things for a little bit of time, but you really have to have them all. And that's sponsorship 
sponsoring women, working with others, getting to know this book right here. You know, this is a textbook. So in textbooks, you study textbooks. It's not just a novel, it's a textbook. Getting connected with your higher power, however that works. And, and being able to pray and making meetings because when nothing else will, strenuous work with another alcoholic will save the day. Valerie, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. You guys have a great day. This podcast is from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. You can learn more and support our mission at magdalenehouse.org.